And below this, we read the verse, And look that thou make them after their pattern, which we shew thee in the mount. The second illumination is titled, Itrapeza, the table. The Virgin Mary is again seated upon a throne with a back and bolster and footstool. The throne is placed between inlaid columns. She inclines her head to the right and gazes at the child. To either side of her are Nomina Sacra, Medir Theo, the Mother of God. Above is a paraphrase of a passage in the Christian topography. The table is a type of the earth, while the bread is its fruits. The crown signifies the land surrounded by the ocean, and thither is paradise. The third illumination is titled, I Eptakablos Lichnia, the seven-branch candlestick. The candlestick is surmounted by the Virgin and Christ child seated upon a throne which is without back or canopy. Christ blesses with his right hand. At each of the seven arms, the candlestick divides into three, each end supporting a flame. The fourth illumination is titled, Iravdos Aaron Iblastisasa, the rod of Aaron that budded. Christ is supported upon the left arm of the Holy Virgin, and she inclines her head to the child and kisses him upon the cheek. With her right hand, she points to the child, who in turns looked up into the face of his mother. The throne stands upon a colored strip, indicating the ground. Below them is a second, a smaller, ornamented throne, without a back, also depicted upon the ground. The last illumination is titled, Dosina Oros i Alithis Theoria, Mount Sinai, the True Vision. The prophet Moses is before the burning bush at the base of Mount Sinai. With his right hand he removes his sandals, and with his left he covers his face. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. To the right, the hand that extends in blessing from a halo signifies that Moses was speaking with God. A stylized tree to the left frames the depiction. Mount Sinai rises up in darkness beyond the burning bush, an indication of the second theophany when Moses ascended to the peak and received the tablets of the law. And Moses drew near unto the thick darkness where God was. Above is an icon of the Virgin Mary, known as the Odegivria, the directress. She supports Christ in her left hand, pointing to him with her right, and he in turn blesses her with his right hand. These are extremely important illuminations that do not find parallels in the three surviving illuminated manuscripts of the Christian topography at the Vatican, in Florence, and at Sinai. It is all the more tragic that this manuscript perished in the destruction of Smyrna in 1922. In all Orthodox churches, there is a screen of icons separating the sanctuary from the nave. In this sense, the church itself is like the tabernacle with its place for the people and its inner space reserved for the priest. The central opening of the icon screen has a door that is closed with two leaves and a veil that is drawn over the opening as well. On the two leaves of the door, it is customary to depict the Annunciation with the Archangel Gabriel on the left at the moment of the salutation, Hail thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. 
and the Virgin Mary on the right, accepting the salutation, be it unto me according to thy word. But in the Basilica of Sinai, this is not the case. A departure from the rule can take place if the church is a special shrine. Here, as a place where the tabernacle was first constructed, the two leaves of the door depict Moses and Aaron. Aaron is on the right, wearing the vestments of the high priest, and holding a censer in his right hand, and in his left, the almond staff that budded. And behold, the rod of Aaron for the house of Levi was budded, and brought forth buds, and bloomed blossoms, and yielded almonds. Moses is on the left, holding the tablets of the Ten Commandments, upon which are visible symbols of the tabernacle, the golden vessel that held manna, and an icon of the all-holy Theotokos and the Christ child, this is yet another instance of the parallels that we have been tracing here. We encounter a certain paradox in any study of the tabernacle. God had said to the prophet Moses, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And yet we read in the prophet Isaiah, Thus saith the Lord, The heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? For all these things hath mine hand made. In what sense, then, was the tabernacle the dwelling place of God? Questions such as this became points at issue during the time of iconoclasm. Those who rejected the veneration of icons did so because the second commandment forbids the making of graven images. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. They also felt that it was wrong to use material images in spiritual worship. Those who reverenced the icons answered that God had indeed forbid the making of graven images, but at the same time he had commanded Moses to make two cherubim. And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold, of beaten work shalt thou make them, in the two ends of the mercy seat. The second commandment was thus not a prohibition against representational art, but it was a prohibition against attempting to betray the divinity. For God had revealed himself, but not in any form. For ye saw no manner of similitude on the day that the Lord spake unto you in Horeb out of the midst of the fire. But in the fullness of time the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. How this could be so must ever remain a mystery. But there have been many times when the church has been called upon to say what this was not. These Christological controversies have required the formulation of precise distinctions in terminology. Using the language of Chalcedon, the Fourth Ecumenical Council, we say that Christ is a perfect divine nature and a perfect human nature united in one hypostasis. Christ shares his divine nature with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He shares his human nature with every human being. These natures, as such, cannot be portrayed. But the hypostasis, which combines the two natures, has the properties of an individual who can be portrayed. 
And since the two natures are not separated, again, using the language of Chalcedon, the one portrayed is incarnate God. Thus the iconoclasts were wrong to condemn the use of material images. St. John of Damascus, writing in defense of the veneration of icons, invoked the example of the tabernacle. What is more insignificant than colored goatskins? Are not blue and purple and scarlet merely colors? Behold the handiwork of men becoming the likeness of the cherubim. Was not the meeting tent an image in every way? And see that thou make them after the pattern for them which was shewn unto thee in the mountain. Yet all the people stood around it and worshipped. Were not the cherubim kept where all the people could see them? Did not the people gaze upon the ark and the lampstand and the table and the golden urn and Aaron's rod and fall down and worship? I do not worship matter. I worship the creator of matter, who became matter for me, taking up his abode in matter and accomplishing my salvation through matter. In this passage, St. John touches upon yet another question. What is the relation between an image and that which it portrays? An icon and its prototype differ in essence, but share the same likeness. In venerating an icon, we do not venerate the nature of the image, the material of which it is made, but we venerate the likeness of the prototype that appears in the image. Here also the tabernacle presents an analogy, and that the tabernacle which was fastened here below was a likeness of the tabernacle in the heavens that God had revealed to Moses. The priests of the tabernacle served unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as we read in the epistle to the Hebrews. At the outbreak of iconoclasm, John of Damascus has written, For since we are twofold, fashioned of soul and body, and our soul is not naked, but as it were covered by a mantle, it is impossible for us to reach what is intelligible apart from what is bodily. Just as therefore, through words perceived by the senses, we hear with bodily ears and understand what is spiritual, so through bodily vision we come to spiritual contemplation. In the generation following, Theodore the Studite developed the same thought. So whether in an image, or in the gospel, or in the cross, or in any other consecrated object, there God is manifestly worshipped in spirit and in truth, as the materials are exalted by the raising of the mind towards God. The mind does not remain with the materials because it does not trust in them. That is the error of the idolaters. Through the materials, rather, the mind ascends towards the prototype, this is the faith of the Orthodox. The entire imagery of the tabernacle is very much a part of every Orthodox church. There is a sanctuary reserved for the priests, separated from the nave by a veil. The church will be filled with lamps. Clergy investments offer up fragrant incense as the emblem of prayer. The sacos of an Orthodox hierarch is adorned with small bells still sounding of reconciliation between God and man. In worship, we join our prayers and hymns to those of the angels who ever stand before the throne of God in heaven. There is also the theology that it is Christ himself who is a celebrant at every divine liturgy. 
towards the conclusion of the prayer of the Cherubicam, the priest prays, For thou art he that offereth, and is offered, and that accepteth, and is distributed, O Christ our God. As St. John Chrysostom has said, the priest lends his tongue and affords his hand. God commanded Moses that the construction of the tabernacle should be the work of Bezalel. I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and in understanding and in knowledge and in all manner of workmanship. He was to create the objects for the tabernacle, but in all things he was to adhere to the pattern that had been revealed to Moses upon the mount. Vincent of Ladins in the 5th century saw in this an example for Christians who must find ways to adorn, arrange, and display the faith to others without departing from its integrity. He writes, O Timothy, O priest, O expositor, O doctor, if the divine gift has qualified you by wit, by skill, by learning, be a Bezalel of the spiritual tabernacle, engrave the precious gems of divine doctrine, fit them in accurately, adorn them skillfully, add splendor, grace, beauty, let that which formerly was believed, though imperfectly apprehended, as expounded by you, be clearly understood. Let posterity welcome, understood through your exposition, what antiquity venerated without understanding. Yet teach still the same truths which you have learned, so that though you speak after a new fashion, what you speak may not be new. There are a few last observations to be made about the tabernacle, and they are somewhat surprising. In the epistle of the Hebrews, we read that it was Christ himself who became our high priest and entered into the holy place, offering himself up as a propitiatory sacrifice. St. Gregory of Nyssa has written, He who would be a priest to God should also bring his own body to the altar, and become a sacrifice, not by being put to death, but by living a living sacrifice and rational service. And Tertullian, writing about the tabernacle in the third century, could say, These things were figures of us, for we are temples of God, and altars, and lights, and sacred vessels. We return yet again to the Incarnation. God has become man, born of the all-holy Theotokos, lying in a manger. We are called to become ourselves a space wherein the uncontainable one is contained. At the end of the book of Revelation, John beholds a vision of the new Jerusalem. And I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for most former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, 
for these words are true and faithful. God has kept his promise. We are again at Sinai, God dwelling in the midst of his people. This is our future hope. Thank you. to sort of expand the possibility of questions, uh, add to some of the comments that Dr. Tibbs made um, about who he is and what he represents. Um, for bibliophiles in the audience, like myself, this is nothing less than an opportunity to salivate. Um, can you imagine being in a place where all these manuscripts reside and You've got the only library card. Um, <laughs> that's what he does, and, and and especially for our students, I think this is this is an important illustration <clears throat> of what serious thought, serious research, which is very difficult to do over many many years. It's not only the the writings and and the authors of the manuscripts that are being studied, but also the folks the individuals who are studying and trying to put this all together. And, and part of the, the pedagogy, if you will, at St. Catherine is the concept of inquiry seeking wisdom. And we talk about the sort of three uh, levels of knowing where there is at the base information and then knowledge and then finally wisdom. Well, we live in an information age. It's very hard to get to wisdom. And I think what you've seen tonight is how inquiry, how asking questions, how doing the research, doing the heavy lifting and the hard work can lead us to wisdom. And these are not only treasures that are unique, perhaps, to the Orthodox tradition, but these are treasures of Christendom. And, and if you really pull back and realize what has been preserved in this amazing place over centuries, and, and your project now, that maybe you can give us a couple of lines uh, about the digitization and the availability of these manuscripts. We hear about the Qumran manuscripts and the Dead Sea Scrolls, that sort of thing, mm -hmm. and making all that available to scholars. But maybe you can tell us a little bit more about what you're doing in, in, in those efforts, and then we can get take some questions perhaps even on that topic. We have 3,300 manuscripts. They date from the 4th century. They are written in 11 languages. So it is a supremely important resource for the study of the scriptures and the study of the history and spirituality of the church. And scholars are constantly making use of these as they come to better understanding. It is difficult to go to Sinai, and there are many scholars who need to use the materials but cannot come to Sinai. And so through that, we have started a program to photograph them with a high-resolution digital camera, and then we're able to share these. We see this as preserving the manuscript, because if we photograph it, and the scholar's using photographs, he's not handling the original, but the scholars see this as a way of making everything more accessible. Uh, one of the great challenges that we face is trying to read those manuscripts where the original writing was washed off and the page was used a second time. The original writing remains as a faint image underneath. 
And through the latest advances in digital photography, we're able to photograph these in what's called multispectral imaging. And through the work of talented scientists, we can often clarify these faint underlying texts and make them available to scholars. And that's exactly what we came here to Los Angeles to discuss. And we'll be starting a project on November the 28th. So this is a, an exciting prospect, and it shows the continuing importance of all of these resources. It, it's a resource that we keep in trust for the whole world, and we're constantly reminded of how important these resources are. But it's not a library that's been assembled from all over the world by an institution. These are things that have grown up there over the centuries to support the monks in their dedication. So everything is still in its original context, and that gives, gives an added dimension to the manuscripts that are there at Sinai. In all of its 17 centuries of history, it has never been destroyed and never been abandoned. So it's a remarkable record of continuity and a remarkable treasury uh, for scholars and people seeking to understand the history and the spirituality of the church. Great, thank you. Question. John. Father, could you say a little bit about how uh, the monastery has been a witness to a lot of the modern scholars who are probably not Orthodox and are interested in, in all this? And, and it's all coming from you know Orthodox monks with long beards that they've probably never seen. No, I, uh, it's, it's a big topic. Let's, let's uh, uh, a brief synopsis. In 1627, the Patriarch of Alexandria, uh, 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 who later became the Patriarch of Constantinople, gave the Codex Alexandrinus as a gift to England. This was the first time scholars in Europe had seen such an early manuscript of the scriptures. It dates from the fifth century. And the difference between the early and the later manuscripts sparked the whole drive. Let's go back to the earliest text. Let's go through the whole world, find the oldest manuscripts, and try to reconstruct the earliest text of the scriptures. And that is what led scholars to come to Sinai in the 19th century especially, and to find the Codex Sinaiticus, to realize the significance of the Codex Sinaiticus, the Codex Syriacus, some of these very, very early copies of the scriptures that have been so important. If anyone wants to study the text of the New Testament today, he has to become very familiar with the readings of the Codex Sinaiticus. These have been of the greatest help. But today, the challenge facing the church is not just related to the text, but we're being challenged in the very foundations of belief. And some of the ways in which Christians are being challenged today and some fundamental issues are the very same as St. Irenaeus faced at the end of the second century. So if a person comes to understand the history of the church, then he's in a better state to meet the challenges that we face today as Christians. And that is where the community of Sinai can remind us not only of the central importance of the text of the scriptures, but also how important it is to know church history and the community of Sinai exemplifies this in its long continuity dating from the very early church. Uh, two related questions. You said that St. Gregory of Nyssa talked about 
the mana as being in anticipation of a virgin. And I was just looking recently at the, uh, the vespers of uh, the entrance of the Theotokos into the temple, and it talks about food being given to her. Is there any, can you comment on either of those, and is there any relationship between them? There were many, many beautiful homilies on the Virgin Mary given in the 8th century, and these have recently been published as the um, part of the series is called Patristic Texts that are published by St. Vladimir's Seminary. And I was amazed at the beauty and the profound thoughts that are pre presented in these homilies. And it does mention when the Virgin Mary was consecrated to God, as Samuel had been, and grew up in the place of, of the uh, tabernacle. And the parallel that is made between the tabernacle of old and the Virgin Mary who became the image of the tabernacle in that she became the dwelling place of God. So, so these are is the role such, such beautiful hymns that, that we are present that such beautiful thoughts that we are we encounter in the hymns and iconography, but unless we know this background that I've tried to to show, uh, we're mystified by these references. But then once you catch this, then it, it opens up things that have been obscure until then. But what about the mana? What does Saint Gregory say? Why is the mana in anticipation of the virgin? Because it was She's produced scary. without, because it was produced without human labor. In the same way that that Christ took up his abode in her, but she remained a virgin. And and is it the mana that she's given in the holy of holies, according well, to him? Well, he's given food by the angels. And it says in the Psalms, man ate the bread of angels, which is itself a reference to the manna. So in that sense, there is a connection. Yes. Um, the, I, I was looking at the icons of the Theotokos <coughs> for life. Do something along that line. But I noticed that there is a table in each of those icons. And the table is set. Now is that the ta that that representative of the tabernacle? That the table is there in the icon of the nativity of the Theotokos, the presentation of the Theotokos, and uh, was it there in the? Um, I, I just noticed that it was there. Um, for, for so so is that representative of the tabernacle, or is that just a festal table? Well, I haven't, I haven't studied the iconography in detail. Sorry. So that's where. <laughs> but I, I just, I, I noticed that, and I noticed the, that, I, you know, it's like when you hear scripture all the time, and sometimes it just kind of jumps out at you, mm -hmm. but the, the tables are set, and they're set with um, certain things, so I guess I need no, it to could be. an iconographer. <laughs> yeah. These are good questions. Fine. Uh, yes, could you... Uh, repeat that the source of the quotation about uh, making things, saying things uh, anew, but keeping the same message. It's a very inspirational message for the liturgical artists. Uh, 
when I was at a monastery, we always had readings during the meals. And so you hear amazing things, but since you're not reading them yourself, you think, now where in the world did I find that? And I remember clearly the saying, be thou spiritual Bezalel. Bezalel was the talented artist, and he made the tabernacle, but he had to conform to the pattern that was showed. And I remember the thought was, we have to express our faith and find a way to do it to our own, in our own age, but we don't change the basics. And I, and I looked and I looked, I even got the TLG, I looked at every instance where Bezalel recurs in all the patristic literature, I couldn't find anything. And it was because I was looking in the Greek, and essentially in the Latin. <laughs> and and uh, with the internet, I just had to search for Bezalel spiritual tabernacle, and suddenly it was there. <laughs> and and it's it's from Saint Vincent of Ledins, who lived in the fifth century. The internet is treacherous; it can deceive you into thinking that you're mastering things, <laughs> when actually things are being presented to you in a superficial way. But it's astonishing how easy it is, if, if you remember something, even a few words, it's astonishing how easy it is to find it. More questions? Yes, Eve. I thought I was, I was touched this afternoon hearing about how um, the monastery itself is changing. How even in just uh, a few years since you've been there, it's a very different place and far more open. I wonder if you could just share what I, you I visited there for the first time, the first time I went to Jerusalem in 1978, because from 1967 to 1982, the Sinai was a part of Israel. And when pilgrims would go to Jerusalem, they were encouraged, now you can go to Sinai, because the Israelis had built the present road system for defense purposes, but then it became so accessible. So it was exactly at that time that people began to visit Sinai more so than they had before. The present archbishop came there in 1961 when there was just a gravel road, and every time it rained, the, grav the, the boulders would wash across the road and you had to clear the road again. And so it was not very well known, it was seldom visited, difficult to reach. And in the late 70s and early 80s, it became more accessible. But even then, there was nothing outside the monastery. There were no hotels or restaurants. You had to bring your own food. and. Uh, it was still difficult to reach, but it was then, with the influx of visitors at the monastery, built a guest house outside, and in time, when the Egypt, when the Sinai was returned to Egypt in 1982 as a part of the Camp David Accords, the Egyptians paved the roads, they put in hotels and shops and restaurants, and so the whole area was given the infrastructure to support the number of visitors that come there. And just five years ago, they started direct flights from Moscow to Sharm el-Sheikh. And every Saturday, whole squadrons of planes come in with Russians who are coming for a week at the beach. And included in their package is a one-day excursion to Sinai. Some of them make the journey just because of the opportunity to come to the monastery. And some of them couldn't care less. They're just there for the, for the week at the beach. But it's nice to see Russians who don't know anything about the monastery, and then when they visit, they see the 
gifts that were given by the emperors of Russia in past centuries and realize that this has been a place where Russians have been coming over a long period of time and then they become enthused about it. We used to bring out the relics of St. Catherine on very rare occasions, but now we can have uh, 500 Russians visiting every single day. So at noon, when all the tourists leave, the Russians stay behind, and then we bring out the relics of St. Catherine for them. We're trying to encourage the Russians to remember the amazing heritage they had from before the revolution, and now they have the ability to recover that heritage. So th these are ways in which the, the monastery is being inundated with visitors. We're only open from 9 to 12 in the morning, but within those three hours, sometimes we have a thousand people crowding through the church and seeing the museum, and we can't possibly meet or relate to all these people, but we try to be sensitive to the ones who are, express a greater interest in the library or a special interest in the icons, and, and then uh, share more of our heritage with them. But we have to strike a careful balance. We, could, we can't close the door to all the visitors because it's such a special place, but neither can we just become a full-time museum. We have to survive as a living monastic community. So that's why we're only open three days in the morning, so that as crowded and noisy as it is during the morning, it's profoundly quiet and peaceful at 4 o'clock in the morning when we start our first service, and every evening when we have vespers and then time of quiet in the evening. The challenge facing the monastery is to preserve the living spiritual heritage which was born in silence and isolation uh, today when there's no longer that isolation. And uh, many people say how tragic that the monastery is not so isolated as it once was, but the Archbishop has said no monastery is so isolated as it once was, and perhaps this is in the providence of God. When people are looking for inspiration and looking for consolation, then this ancient spirituality has now become accessible, and it's our obligation to share it with the world. Catherine College is an orthodox undergraduate college of liberal arts and sciences located in San Diego, California. Outstanding teaching and research with relevance to the practical world and Christian witness as guiding principles is our primary purpose. College programs encompass several academic disciplines and degree-granting programs as well as interdisciplinary collaborations, laboratories, and programs whose work cut across traditional departmental boundaries. We realize these aims in a singularly collegial, interdisciplinary atmosphere while educating outstanding students to become creative members of society. St. Catherine College is independent, co-educational, not-for-profit, and privately endowed. The college admits students of all religious and faith backgrounds, and all classes are taught by experienced faculty who have earned terminal degrees in their academic fields. To learn more, please visit www.stkath.org. That's www.stkath.org.